Hello, my rebels. Today is Friday, and I have a story for you, for you from Birmingham, United Kingdom. It is the second largest city in the UK, and um, it's a very Islamified city. In fact, I'm going to show you some footage now. If you're listening by podcast, you won't see it, so you'll have to take my word for it, of 140,000 Muslim men praying in a park in Birmingham. I know it's a staggering thing to say and to hear, but that is Birmingham. How do you think that impacts LGBT sex ed? Well, it's obvious, but less obvious is, how do you think left-wing activists like the Guardian newspaper react to the reaction? That's I think even more interesting. So that's what today's podcast is about. By the way, may I invite you to become a premium subscriber? This podcast is free. Mazel tov. Enjoy it. But if you want to watch it in video form, you got to subscribe. Go to the rebel.media slash shows. It's eight bucks a month, 80 bucks for a year, and you get a little discount if you type the coupon code podcast. You know, even if you don't actually watch it, even if you're just a podcast listener, it's a great way to support us because Lord knows we're not taking any of that sweet, sweet Justin Trudeau bailout money. It's all viewer supported over here. So just go to the rebel.media slash shows. You get my show, you get Sheila Gunn Reed's show, you get David Menzies' show, and it's a way of showing your support for us. Without further ado, herewith is today's episode of the Ezra Levant Show. Tonight, a story from 10 minutes into our future, the final showdown between gay rights and Muslim rights. Guess who wins? It's March 8th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I saw this story out of the corner of my eye a couple of months ago. It was a short video segment online. It's from a meeting of concerned parents at a school. Now, the school is in Birmingham, the one in the United Kingdom, not in Alabama. Birmingham is the second largest city in the UK. What an ancient city. Here's its legal charter, almost 900 years old. Here's a picture of it drawn on the eve of the Industrial Revolution in 1732. Here's an early factory from the mid-18th century. Birmingham was hit in the Battle of Britain. It was bloodied but unbowed, of course. Look at how lovely it is today. Isn't that pretty? Just gorgeous. Birmingham. Look at that. Yeah, but Birmingham's a bit different these days, though. I, I know I mentioned to you, I'd show you a school meeting, and I will in a moment, but I, I showed you that lovely green field. Let me show you a, a park in Birmingham called Small Heath Park. It's actually pretty big. See for yourself. Allahu 
That's Small Heath Park in Birmingham. According to the Daily Mail, there were 140,000 Muslim men there, men only, of course, praying for the Muslim holiday of Eid. Even if it was half that number, it was staggering. So now you know Birmingham a bit. Let's watch that school video after all. It's from a Muslim media outlet called Five Pillars. Take a look. Parents come out and say that this is not acceptable. It's, it's against uh, the Equalities Act. We are on the side of the law. They are outside the law of the school. I, in fact, think that they have acted... I think it's better if you control the placards and control the messages. Well, as long as we're not... Thank you, please Uh, we held this meeting, uh, it's to do with no outsiders in our school. It's a program that's been developed at Parkfield School over the last four years by a, a gay teacher called um, uh, Mr. Moffitt. And, and basically, uh, Mr. Moffitt's premise is that if you uh, do not uh, believe in homosexuality, you must be homophobic. And, and, uh, um, uh, and on that basis, he's designed this program called No Outsiders, and uh, he's like uh, proselytizing um, uh, a homosexual way of life through it to, to young kids in primary school. Uh, now, now that's changing our children's belief. We, we want the, the No Outsiders program to be withdrawn. We want an apology from, 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 the, um, uh, from the school and we want the school to be investigated as to why uh, uh, this, this took place because a, a lot of parents uh, were objectionable about it. A lot of parents weren't consulted and it was done in a very surreptitious manner. We're going to protest and uh, um, we're going to try and get our voice out there and, and, and tell people that we're not homophobic. We simply don't want our children's belief changed and we want our community ethos respected. Uh, now I want to pause for a moment and note a particular turn of phrase. He complains that people say if you don't support homosexuality, you're labeled as homophobic. I couldn't help but think if you don't support the religion of Islam, you're called Islamophobic. That's the first thing I thought of there. But the rest of what he says was pretty plain. He doesn't want Muslim kids learning about homosexuality. And more than that, he actually wants an investigation into the teacher who was teaching it. So that video was back in February, and I noted it because I thought, you know, if that guy were Christian, he'd be, one, made world famous as a bigot, two, fired from his job by some Twitter mob, Three, every gay rights group would come down on him like a ton of bricks. And four, he'd be the one being investigated and possibly prosecuted for a hate crime. He wouldn't be calling for an investigation of a gay teacher. That's just a fact. I mean, we all heard about the Christian bakery or the pizza parlor that was commanded to bake a, way, a gay wedding cake. They're all Christian bakers, of course. No Muslim bakeries are subject to that rough justice. Anyways, back to Birmingham, the UK's second city. I say again, what I just showed you was from a Muslim TV outlet, so obviously they're not going to call that Muslim man a bigot. But what about the mainstream media, which is currently on a transgender um, jihad, to borrow a phrase? I mean, holy cow, in the last five years, trans went from an unknown concept to the center of the culture, absolutely destroying women's sports along the way, of course, and creeping into everything from public bathrooms to prisons. So where's the LGBT lobby here in Birmingham? Well, thanks for asking. It is hiding 
Here's a story in the Birmingham Mail. Muslim mums protest outside school for promoting homosexuality to their kids. It's a pretty friendly headline, don't you think? Let me read some of the story. A group of angry mums have launched a protest and petition against their school for introducing a curriculum supporting homosexuality. Andrew Moffat, MBE, assistant head teacher at Parkfield Community School in Saltley, has been criticized by parents for piloting No Outsiders, a program run alongside sex and relationship education lessons. Its ethos promotes LGBT equality and challenges homophobia in primary schools. Books now being read by pupils at Parkfield Community School include Mommy, Mama, and Me, and King and King, stories about same-sex relationships and marriages. But Mr. Moffat and the No Outsiders program have come under fire from some Muslim parents who condemn such teachings as homosexuality is strictly forbidden in Islam. Now, it is an extremely long article. I know it felt like I read the whole thing new. It goes on and on and on and on. It quotes Muslim mums at great length. It goes into detail about Muslim views on gays. It does give some space to Mr. Moffat, the gay teacher, for sure. But let me end the suspense. Never once are these women condemned or judged. Never once are they called bigots. And funny enough, there's no gay lobby group quoted condemning them. Why, why is that? I mean, just for example, we, we saw Kevin Hart, a pretty funny comedian, I think, be canceled as the host for this year's Oscars because he made a dumb gay joke on Twitter back in 2011 that he deleted. That's how hair trigger things are, but not in Birmingham? Oh, right, that's why. 99% of the students at the school in question are Muslim. And it won't surprise you, so is the local politician. He can count. He's Muslim himself, actually. Counselor backs, local, backs Muslim mums who accuse school of promoting homosexuality is another headline in the Birmingham paper. Alam Rock counselor Mohammed Idris has said being open about LGBT is in the classroom is, quote, not a good idea. Oh, it's settled then, I guess. Well, the school dug in a bit. I mean, Mr. Moffat is a bit of a celebrity. He's been on all the talk shows. The actor, Hugh Jackman, has actually done a video about him being a great teacher. So the fancy people were not giving up. But they live in fancy parts of London and send their kids to elite schools, not schools like this one. They don't live in Birmingham. Birmingham, did I say Birmingham? Birmingham. I mean, when your entire parent body says, we're out of here, Hugh Jackman isn't enough to convince them. So how did it all end? This story has been gurgling around for months. Well, we'll take a look at this protest outside the school this week. But we need to make one thing very clear. This program, it's not just about telling people that other families and other types of lifestyles exist. It's actually aggressively promoting them, giving it a positive spin and telling people that it is okay for you to be Muslim and for you to be gay. Mr. Moffat, shame, 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 shame. 
Mr. Moffat, I did not want to make this personal, but Mr. Moffat has decided upon his own self to reinterpret our religious scriptures. And I don't know, I don't know where he, I don't know where he gets his religious education from and when he became Mufti Moffat. But our religious beliefs are not here to be changed. We don't send our children to school to be indoctrinated. That's the word that our these parents have been saying again and again and again. This is an aggressive indoctrination that is going on that we are speaking against. If there was no aggressive promotion, then you would not have had all these parents come out on the street. Yeah. And as I've said to you, this program is very toxic. Not only do we, we are aiming to have it abolished in this school, but we're going to have it abolished in every school in Birmingham, every school in the country. And that's going to happen with a grassroots movement of parents coming out on the streets. That's what's, that is what is needed. Parents coming out and fighting their corner and fighting for their children's rights. What do you think of that homemade preacher mobile? Holy cow, I get the feeling he uses that every day. Half the kids at the school are outside the school laughing and mocking that gay teacher, Mr. Moffat. And would you look at this? Would you look at this? Birmingham school stops LGBT lessons after parents protest. Hundreds of children withdrawn from Parkfield Community School for the day. Apparently 600 children were taken out of class by their parents. They've been having that protest in different form for weeks. How did you think this was going to end? Yeah, so this story is from The Guardian, this capitulation story. It's a perfectly left-wing newspaper. We don't have anything as left-wing as that in Canada. It's a caricature of left-wingedness. And I read the story carefully. No gay rights groups were quoted. No one was called a homophobe. In fact, the only time that the word homophobe was used was quoting a Muslim mum saying she's not a homophobe. Can I ask where all the gay rights activists went? I mean, even at The Guardian. I mean, of course, they're not going to be in that Muslim video channel. But how about The Guardian? Why are they so silent here? Can I show you a, a news clip from RT that stands for Russia Today? It's a state broadcaster uh, for, for Vladimir Putin. But I thought it was interesting. Um, I'm going to run it for, for more in a minute here, because uh, I think the media coverage is just as big a story here as the story itself. Take a look. A primary school in Birmingham has caved into pressure and temporarily pulled the plug on its lessons on LGBT rights. That's after hundreds of parents reportedly kept their children at home in protest. RT's Polly Boyka gives us the details. 
Well, the cause of this row is a educational diversity program called No Outsiders, and it aims to teach kids about the different types of families that they might encounter, and talking to them about things like the idea of having two mums or two dads, and reading books to kids as young as four about the concept of uh, same-sex families. The program was devised by the deputy head of the school at the centre of this row. His name's Andrew Moffat, and actually he's been uh, nominated for the World's Best Teacher Award. Take a look at him talking about the program. Mummy Lula hugged her, and now they were sick on both of them. <laughs> Mummy Nini got some tissues and wiped them both. No Outsiders is about teaching children that you are different, but you can still be friends with anybody. There's a huge rise in hate crime in the last year. As schools, we have to find ways to teach children to, talk, to counter that, really. But the majority of the parents at this school are unhappy with Andrew Moffat's teaching methods. Um, it's a predominantly Muslim school, and parents fundamentally disagree with the idea of teaching kids about homosexuality and LGBT issues. Um, some of our viewers might know that Islam, in Islam, homosexuality is forbidden. So up until now, the school had really held firm and said that they would continue this, what they see as a very necessary diversity program. Just saying without comment that Islam is anti-gay, be, because that's pretty much true. And it's something that people normally don't like to talk about. We, we see the six gender sex ed that Kathleen Wynne introduced in Ontario. We see gay straight alliance laws that David Egan is introducing in Alberta, but that's not happening in Muslim schools. And no one is suing or condemning them. In fact, the former Premier of Ontario, Kathleen Wynne, who was an out-of-the-closet lesbian activist, frankly, well, look at that picture of her there. She's wearing a hijab, and she's sitting at the back of a mosque all by herself, submissive. Pretty sure that's the polar opposite of how she is in any other setting. She's submitting there. I mean, she's gone now as premier, but she was submitting. Rachel Notley is submissive, too, to the religion of peace. Here she is wearing a hijab for some reason, even though she wasn't in a mosque. At least Kathleen Wynne had the excuse of being in a mosque. This is Rachel Notley wearing a hijab at her office. Well, there's a good reason for this. Well, I don't know, maybe you'd call it a bad reason. Let me show you a massive poll done of British Muslims by the impeccable firm called ICM. It was done for Channel 4, an impeccably liberal British broadcaster. And the story was led by Trevor Phillips, the black man who used to head up their Human Rights Commission in the UK. He himself actually popularized the phrase Islamophobia. Now, I've done a larger video on this poll a couple years ago, and I recommend you dig it up. This was a meticulous poll. They actually sent people in to do person, face-to-face -face interviews in Muslim areas of the UK, sending Muslims in to have heart-to-heart -heart conversations. This wasn't just an online poll or a phone call poll. Frankly, this was the most comprehensive public opinion poll I have ever heard of in my life. And the poll 
shows that the overwhelming number of British Muslims want to criminalize homosexuality. 52% want it criminalized, 18% don't. The question you could see, homosexuality should be legal in Britain. 18% um, say it should be legal. 52% say it should be illegal to be homosexual. Uh, when asked if gays should be allowed to be teachers, 28% say yeah, and 47% say no. Huge sample size, 1,081. That's the United Kingdom. That's Birmingham. That's parents and kids standing outside Mr. Moffat's office laughing at him. He'll be gone from that school soon enough. Sir, you can't have a handful of white liberals running the place when 600 kids and their parents are outside screaming at you. Or, I don't know, 140,000, as the case may be. Like I say, it's a snapshot of our own place, of our own country, about 10 minutes into the future. Myself, I think sex ed goes too far, as in I think it starts too young. I, I don't think you need to sexualize children of tender years. In Ontario, the, the extreme sex ed starts at the tender age of six, at least under Kathleen Wynne's sex ed program. But that's not the debate I'm having here today. That's not my point here. I think sex ed does go too far. Frankly, there's probably a few things I'd, I agree with these Muslim mums about. But my point is here, leftists, liberals, gay rights activists, social justice warriors, I don't think they mean any of it. I just don't. Even at The Guardian, not at The Guardian, not in the schools, not anywhere, not even the gay rights organizations, not when it's Islam they're up against. Hey folks, it's a simple choice. A liberal society or open immigration? Choose one. You can't have both, people. Stay with us for more. Well, uh, time will tell, but I have a feeling that our relationship with North Korea, Kim Jong-un and myself, Chairman Kim. I think it's a very good one. I think it remains good. I would be uh, surprised in a negative way if he did anything that was uh, not per our understanding. But we'll see what happens. Look, when I came in, under the Obama administration, North Korea was a disaster. You were going to war, folks, whether you know it or not. You were going to war. There was no talking. There was testing. We didn't have our people back. We didn't have our great hostages back. Now we're getting the remains. We're doing a lot of things now. Uh, this was a disaster. I inherited a mess. In many ways, I inherited. The Middle East, I inherited a mess. And it's straightening out a lot. We're doing very well there. I inherited a mess. I inherited, wait, wait. I inherited a mess with North Korea. And right now, you have no testing. You have no nothing. Let's see what happens. But I would be very disappointed if I saw testing. 
there you have it, President Donald Trump doing a scrum at the White House before departing for Alabama, talking about his recent summits in Vietnam with Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. Well, what to make of it? No deal was done. Trump sounding a little bit defensive, but pointing out some progress was made nonetheless. Well, there's one man I know who's an expert on this subject, and his name is Gordon Chang. He's the author of the book Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World, and the forthcoming monograph called Losing South Korea that will be published by Encounter Books. Gordon, great to see you again. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ezra. Well, Gordon, I have a question for you. Um, was it wise for Donald Trump to walk away from a bad deal, or would any deal have been preferable to no deal? Oh, I think it was a great thing that President Trump walked away from Hanoi. What he was saying to the North Koreans was that they just couldn't serve up any slop and that we would accept it, which is what I think Kim Jong-un sort of felt, that they felt that they had Trump in a corner, that Trump felt he had to make a deal. And, and our president said, look, I'm just not going to be bullied. But this is also important because it's a message to the Chinese. You know, we've got these uh, trade negotiations. I think the Chinese were getting, again, a little bit too confident that they could push the U.S. around. And right now in Beijing, I, I'm, I'm sure they're in a little bit of a panic because they realize they need an agreement with uh, America and they just might not get it. Now, I've seen some criticism from pundits that Donald Trump's rhetoric is very friendly towards Kim Jong-un. Now, my instinct is when you're, my analogy is it's like a hostage negotiation with a hostage taker. You say things to flatter them, to make, to put them at ease, because until they put down the gun, you'll almost do anything until they have that power away. In this case, the gun is nuclear weapons. So my own instinct is that when Trump says Chairman Kim, when he's deferential, when he, when he praises him, that that's probably not what Trump truly feels, but it's, it's what you do when you're trying to negotiate with a paranoid tyrant dictator and you don't want to push the button. That's my own amateur instinct. What's your thoughts as a longtime observer? Um, I'm a little bit concerned about the friendliness of the tone. Uh, and there's a reason here. This is legitimization of the North Korean regime. This is something that Kim really wants. And when Trump actually talks about him in terms of chairman, um, what Kim is, it's music to his ears. Now, I can understand your point, um, you know, and this is a way we have dealt with the North Koreans over the course of decades. Unfortunately, it quite has not worked. And I think, you know, Trump was extremely successful before June of last year when he had his maximum pressure campaign, when he was vigorously enforcing sanctions. The North Koreans were making all the concessions. He was making none of them. That's the textbook definition of successful diplomacy. Since then, when he said he's giving Kim this one-time shot to do the right thing, Trump has been generous, and Kim has not really been reciprocating. So I think what Trump is doing is he's saying, OK, I'm going to give you this chance, but I'm going to go back to the more effective coercive tactics later if you don't come around. And Kim, unfortunately, right now, is not coming around. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned China. Um, I have a, a, this sense, and I, I think you agree, tell me if you don't, that, that China in many ways controls North Korea. And of course, um, 
Kim Jong-un takes these armored train visits to China to get his instructions. It feels very, very uh, Stalinist taking an armored train. Maybe he's paranoid about being shot down in a plane or something. Um, can, can you, you mentioned China and they might be nervous. Can you try and t tie this together for us? How uh, does this fit in with Trump's negotiations with China over trade? Is it, is it, is it, both sides trying to use North Korea as a weapon against the other, like a, tr a negotiation tactic? Help us figure it out a bit. Yeah, Ezra, your instincts are right. China does control North Korea, although the Chinese say that they don't. And of course, the North Koreans don't say that either. But Kim Jong-un has made four straight trips to Chinese soil. Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, has made none to North Korea. That's a real indication of a vassal relationship on the part of the North Koreans. So, um, I think that Xi Jinping is absolutely trying to use North Korea as a bargaining chip in trade talks with the U.S. And that was, I thought, pretty clear about maybe three weeks ago when Chinese state media suggested that Trump go to Chinese soil to meet Xi Jinping at Hanan, an island, um, immediately after Trump was going to meet Kim uh, in Hanoi. Um, now, Trump decided not to do that. That's a very good move on the part of our president. Um, but the Chinese are trying to um, put the two together. And I think what Trump is trying to do um, is sort of avoid that and figure out how to deal with the Chinese on a more effective basis. Now, I, I don't want you to give away the surprise. I know it's coming out soon, your, your new monograph, Losing South Korea. Can you give our viewers a little bit of a teaser of what you'll say there? Because, of course, we love South Korea, um, a free democratic economic success, an ally. Um, they obviously have deep familial ties, ethnic ties, historic ties to the North. What do you mean by losing South Korea? Who's losing it and who are we losing it to? Um, we're losing it to North Korea. You know, for most North Americans, you know, you think that it, how could a destitute North Korea take over a larger, prosperous, stronger South Korea? But I think that that's much more probable than the other way around. And what's going on right now is Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president, is deeply anti-American. He's pro-North Korean. He's undermining democracy in his own society. He tried to take the concept of freedom out of the South Korean constitution. He failed. But nonetheless, he did take it out of the textbooks last year. And right now, he's uh, taking control of broadcasters. He's jailing journalists. He's muzzling North Korean defectors in South Korea. He's taking down defenses of South Korea to a North Korean attack. He's whitewashing the North Koreans. You know, if he were tr a traitor, in fact, if he were trying to help North Korea to take over South Korea, he would be doing exactly what he's doing now. Now, I can't speak to what he thinks deep inside. Only he knows that. But we've got to be very concerned that we could lose South Korea as a free society because of the subversion of its president. Most South Koreans are not in favor of Moon's policies on this regard. But nonetheless, Moon is the one who is sitting in the blue house, so not them. Wow, that is shocking. I am unaware of this. I'm very glad to learn of it from you. And I can hardly wait for your uh, new monograph to come out from Encounter Books. When it is, we'll hopefully be able to have you on to talk about it. And we'll send an email link to our people so they can get it. Hopefully, it'll be on Amazon. Gordon, you're very generous with your time. You are my number one favorite expert on these matters. Would you please permit me to ask you one question about a, an, 
unrelated matter. And that sure, is of the Huawei case where a very senior executive of Huawei, in fact, the daughter of the founder, was arrested in Vancouver and is in the process of an extradition fight to, to go to the, the States uh, for various uh, white collar crimes. Right. Uh, that she's accused of. This has created a crisis between China and Canada. A couple of hostages, three hostages, I think, still being held. Can you shine any light on this? Can you give us some perspective? Uh, give our viewers one thing that they might not know about how China might be using this or seeing this battle. Well, the Communist Party uses Huawei, which is employee-owned, as an instrumentality um, to accomplish Chinese purposes. So, for instance, um, you know, right now, the world is deciding whose equipment to use on 5G, Huawei or um, American equipment. And right, and right now, we've got to remember that the Chinese donated the headquarters uh, of the African Union. Um, and from 2012 to 2017, five-year period, um, every night, the Chinese were surreptitiously downloading information off the servers of the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, um, and they were using Huawei equipment to accomplish that. So while um, Huawei says it would never spy on others at the behest of the Communist Party of China, that's exactly what it's doing. And just one other small detail, which has escaped people's attention, but in Hong Kong, Huawei smartphones, because Huawei is a big provider of smartphones around the world. You can't download Twitter or content from Mozilla Firefox. Now, if you're a smartphone provider and you want to sell smartphones, you would not do that. But you, of course, you would do that if you had to, because the Communist Party wants to censor um, the conversations in Hong Kong. So it is an instrumentality of the Communist Party. And, you know, people say, look, you know, Canada is in the middle of this fight. No, it's not. Um, Canada is a big stake in making sure that the world stays free. And so this is, uh, I think, an existential struggle when you look at 5G, AI, all of it, Huawei. Huawei is in the middle of the Communist Party's attempts to dominate the world. Wow, that's amazing. I, I knew about the African Union headquarters. I did not know that you could literally not download various communications apps on the phones in Hong Kong. That is shocking to me. Gordon, I learned so much from you. I'm so grateful for your time. I understand you were a big hit at CPAC this year. We'll have to uh, be there next year to catch you on the big stage there. Thank you for all the work you do. We learned so much and we're always grateful for your time. Oh, I'm so grateful to be on your air, Ezra. So thank you. Well, that's, that's nice of you to say. You're welcome anytime, my friend. Well, there you have it. Gordon Chang, a very important author and thinker in these matters. And we'll be sure to try and get him back on when his monograph, Losing South Korea, is published. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Welcome back. Your letters to me. Paul writes, this is far from over. They won't be able to sell the job spin to anyone but their most diehard supporters. Paul's talking about the SNC-Lavalin excuse. There's so many reasons why that jobs excuse doesn't work. First of all, um, SNC-Lavalin is going to be on the hook for this prosecution, whether they're based in Montreal or based anywhere else. They're going to be on the hook whether or not those jobs, I mean, it's, it's just irrelevant to whether they're being prosecuted, irrelevant to where they're located. They just signed a huge new lease, I think a 20-year lease in Montreal, did huge renovations. They're not going anywhere. 
and it, I mean, there's, there's about 10 little technical reasons why it's a BS excuse, but of course the biggest one is, I don't actually think that uh, Justin Trudeau and Gerald Butts deeply care about jobs. You can't say that after killing $100 billion worth of shovel-ready projects in the oil patch. You can't, you can't have unemployment in Calgary, once again being the highest in the country. You can't have 200,000 people unemployed in oil and gas and say, no, 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 we did this for the jobs. You just don't have the right to say that. Don writes, not enough attention is being paid to the fact that Katie Telford said that she could arrange for several favorable op-ed pieces if Jody Wilson-Raybould would change her mind. Well, I think you're exactly right on that, because, of course, to mention that would be to acknowledge that the industry is, in fact, corrupted. I think we've always known that the CBC was corrupted. They literally get paid by Justin Trudeau. I think we've always sensed that the other big broadcasters are corrupted too because although they may not all take money from the government, they are heavily regulated by the CRTC, not just CTV and the radio stations, but of course, if you're a company that has a TV station and also a cell phone company, you're doubly regulated. So even if you don't get cash directly from the government, if you're a big TV or radio station, you are hyper-regulated by the government. So you do what they say. And let's say you're just a newspaper that has no um, connection to government regulation. Well, that's where the bailout comes in, the $595 million bailout. So yeah, I think the reason why we don't have more investigation as to who those Katie Telford journalists is, is because, well, because it's all of them. On listening to the podcast version of the show, Robert writes, I'm a premium member and like the podcast more than the TV version because I can listen from my phone during my daily walks or driving. Robert, that is a great idea. And I guess I, am, I, I haven't done that myself. I'm not a big podcast guy. And so I keep thinking, well, gee whiz, why don't people watch the video side of it too? Well, obviously, if you're driving, most people don't watch a video while driving. I won't say all people because I happen to know someone who does. And um, of course, when you're like on the bus or something, generally it's just easier to listen. Or like you say, walking. I, I suppose those are some things I never do, like going to the gym or whatever. On Janice Atkinson working for the Rebel, Joan writes, what great videos coming in from Europe. Janice really sheds a pure, unfiltered light on the migrant situation. I was born in the UK and used to love to return for visits. Not anymore. It's not the same place. Great job, Janice. Janice is doing a good job, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should go to rebelfrance.com. Janice spent a few days in Calais, which is the jumping off point for a lot of these migrants to get into the UK, and Wistrum, which is another place. She was even on the beaches of Normandy, you know, the very beaches that Juno Beach, Sword, you know, where the allies on D-Day Canada had the Juno Beach, of course, the, where we liberated Europe, those same patches of beach are where the reverse invasion is coming from. That's where the migrants hop on the dinghies to cross the English Channel to the UK. Isn't that interesting? If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to rebelfrance.com and you can see Janice doing it. Well, folks, that's the show for today and for the week. Until Monday, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom. Mm -hmm.